Our text this morning is found in that Old Testament book of Zechariah and chapter 12 and verse 10. And friends, whenever the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed and when Christ is lifted high, his glorious person, his work upon the cross, we long for sinners to be saved. We long for people to trust him. But the Bible tells us repeatedly that the work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential for anyone to trust the Savior, for anyone to repent and believe. It's what we've just been singing about. And so this morning, I'd like for us to take some time to consider this vital work of the Holy Spirit, his person, and indeed what he brings and what he does. And I want to begin by looking at the names that are given to the Holy Spirit in our text. Now, just to give you some context, when we read a passage like this, sometimes it can be difficult to quite fathom what is taking place. But to give you some background, Zechariah was an old covenant prophet. And uh, he would prophesy to Israel after the Babylonian exile. And only a minority of the people, around 42,000, had come back to Israel from Babylon. Now, this returning group no doubt thought that they would be the first of, of many others and that it would be the beginning of a renewal in the national life of Israel. And God had commanded his returning people to rebuild the temple and to reinstate his worship as ordained by his word. And so looking to the Lord and to his promises, this minority were longing for better days and they looked for the nations coming to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. But the problem was harsh reality soon set in. There was a, a great time of drought and also local opposition against them saw the group become very despondent and so they began to lose heart. And uh, over time, they began to abandon God's commands and everyone began to neglect the means of God and they began just to look after their own situation and their own families and enlarging their own homes and their own dwellings and they neglected the worship of God and they forgot the importance of the temple and they abandoned any thoughts of reestablishing their identity. And so spiritual decline quickly ensued, and it, it wasn't long before the world and idol worship had taken hold of them. You know, just in that, there is a, a serious lesson for us. It's still the same today, you know. You know, if we're not involved with God and his truth and his work, you know, we can very quickly begin to slide away rather than make spiritual progress and walk closely with the Lord. We, we grow distant from spiritual life, which we once craved and enjoyed, and our spiritual aspirations begin to wither, and we begin to pursue other things. And that's what happened here. And so the Lord then sends Zechariah to the remnant in the land, and at this stage there's now only 22,000. And he's given a powerful message to bring to a despairing people, and God looks at his sinful to change them. Now we see that in verse 10 of chapter 12 and it's in great contrast to verse 9 where it says, "In shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And so God says that he will pour out his just fury on the nations even as he promises to pour out his spirit upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so God says that he's going to turn in mercy to his people, which is a remarkable thing. And when God does so, his mercy begins with the outpouring of his spirit of grace 
and supplication. That's what's being said in our text. So what do these titles mean and what do we look at? Well, it says that God is going to pour out his spirit upon the rulers, the house of David, and also the common people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So we will pour out his spirit upon a people who are, who are guilty, who have been quick to turn against him, the city that would crucify the Son of God. And the effect would be, verse 10, they will look on me whom they pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now that text was literally fulfilled on that amazing day of Pentecost, when Peter preached the gospel to the Jews and laid before them the truth of Messiah, whom they crucified. And 3,000 hearts were convicted and they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? They mourned over the Savior whom they had pierced. So this is a, a fulfilled prophecy, but we believe that God continues to fulfill this prophecy until the end of time. And so the Spirit is still being poured out today and sinners are, are still brought under conviction concerning the Messiah who was pierced. And so who is the Holy Spirit who will be poured out? Well, our text calls him the Spirit of grace and supplication. He is the, the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. He is a precious person. And we must never forget that. You know, so many people, they, they talk of the Holy Spirit as, as a power. No, my friends, he is a person. And so that's what we have here. And so the Spirit of grace, and the, so the Holy Spirit is called a Spirit of grace, and the Spirit of grace. And he's called this because of the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus. Now, friends, we mustn't forget that the Holy Spirit, like the Father and the Son, was provoked by the sin of man. He too was, was angry with the sinful rebellion of man and the breaking of God's law. As one explains, when we fell in Adam, the Holy Spirit withdrew himself and his blessed influences from fallen man. Man was left void of all spiritual good. Man was left behind dead in trespasses and sins. And the Bible says that we should fear the breath of the Almighty. Isaiah 11, 4, with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. And that breath is symbolic of the Holy Spirit and indicates his wrath against sin. Now, Christ's intervening work, his mediatorial work in dying for sinners, opens a, a new way for the Spirit to be the Spirit of grace and mercy and love and compassion. That's why the Lord Jesus said in John 16, he said, it's your, for your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And so the Lord Jesus had to complete his saving work on the cross, the mission assigned to him by his Father. And once that was done and he had ascended, exalted, returned, then the Holy Spirit would be outpouring. Now the Spirit's outpouring was dependent upon the birth, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus, it was a, a fruit of that mission being accomplished. And it's because of the work of Christ that the Scriptures can call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of grace. Now, what does it mean? What does it tell us about him? Well, he is the Spirit of grace because he authors all spiritual graces in sinners. 
He is the author of all genuine conviction of sin. He authors the grace of repentance, the grace of faith, the grace of sanctification, of perseverance, the graces of love and humility. The Spirit is the author of all spiritual life and spiritual grace. And you know, if we're the Lord's people, we, we know this truth, but we also experience this truth as the Holy Spirit dwells within us and brings these things to bear upon us. And you know, without the Holy Spirit, we remain dead in our trespasses and sins. We remain unbelieving. Without his gracious work, without his influences, we can't trust the Savior. You know, we, we can't embrace Christ. We can't rest in Christ. We can't understand the gospel and, and retain what has been given. And so as believers, we are utterly dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit. And so he is the spirit of grace. And he's also the spirit of supplication. He is the author of all true prayer. And we need him to teach us to pray. It's very interesting. As soon as the Holy Spirit intervenes and lives in the heart of the sinner, the result is, as we see in Acts 9, verse 11, behold, he is praying. There's a great change that takes place. You know, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, it says that when the Holy Spirit begins his saving work, sinners come to the Lord with, with weeping, that conviction, and supplication. The Holy Spirit teaches us to, to cry out for mercy, to, to plead and beg for pardon from the Lord. And without the Spirit's groaning within us, our prayer is little more than words. And so grace and supplication, they are inseparable. You know, when there is grace, there is supplication, as one says. When there is much grace, there is much supplication. When there is no grace, there is no genuine supplication. And it means to plead. It means to plead out of, of shame and desperation. It's like the, the groaning that we read of in Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, I want you to think on this for a moment, if you're a believer this morning. Do you know that you have got two intercessors? You have got one within the veil, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is objectively interceding for you. But you've also got one within your heart, the Holy Spirit. And he subjectively intercedes. He touches our affections. He moves us to pray. He stirs us up to call upon the Lord. And so the Spirit of God prompts and moves the believer's hearts and you know, one Puritan puts it like this, creates a lovely music of the soul, a pouring out of our hearts and our desires to the Lord. You know, the Spirit of God at work in that way. And when we do that, by His grace, the Lord sees that this is the work of His Spirit within us. You know, when I read that passage in Romans 8, and it says we, we don't know what we should pray for as we ought, you know, you, you understand that, don't you? We feel that so often. But the Spirit teaches us. That's the incredible thing about prayer. You know, I don't know about you and your experience. Sometimes we, we turn to pray and we feel utterly dead and dry. Maybe you've known that in your experience. You know, there are times when, you know, when I, I, I've gone to pray and you just say, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. You know, everything seems to be a struggle. And you begin and you try to address the Lord. And, you know, everything's just difficult. 
doesn't seem to flow and you know, just terrible. And you, you try and struggle on and, and pray that you know, the Lord would help you to pray. And there are times when we pray through and when we, we persevere. And then suddenly, you know, the, the Spirit of God fills our hearts. And we enjoy that, that beautiful help and that, that communion with the Lord. And we were able to prize just how glorious it is to lay hold of God in prayer, to hold communion with God. You see, that is the Spirit helping us. You know, we're not on our own. Christ is helping us at the throne, and the Spirit is helping us here below in the depths of our mind and soul. And so the truth here is that we should strive to pray in the Spirit. Now, I wonder if you know the difference between praying and praying in the Spirit. You know, Paul doesn't simply tell us to pray he says we are to pray in the Spirit, Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Now, maybe because of some of the excesses and various things, you know, we're afraid of using language like that. You know, we, 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 we get concerned over it. We shouldn't be. It's the language of Scripture. And there is a big difference between prayer and real prayer. And I wonder if you know the difference between praying and praying in the Spirit. You know, it's not an absolute distinction, but there are times when, when the Lord's people pray and they are evidently helped. You sense the nearness of God. You know, there are times when it's not like that. Times when we feel as though, you know, it's dry. But there are times when we, are, we know the help of the Lord and the help of the Holy Spirit. At times we know that extraordinary help. But too often we feel as though we're, we're struggling through on our own. But surely our hearts are. We want to know more of that spiritual help in prayer. We want to know more of the Spirit helping us in our weakness. And that's what indeed he, he does. He's the Spirit of supplication. And you say, well, well, how does he help us? How does he help us in praying? Well, prayer can be a heavy burden for the cause of Christ and the, the glory of God in the world and the work of prayer can seem overwhelming. It can seem too great for us. You know, we lack strength. But, you know, someone omnipotent is there helping us. The gracious Holy Spirit of supplication is there to help. We're not on our own with that burden. His mighty arms are, are underneath the burden, helping us. And as believers, we should long for, for more help of the spirit of grace and supplication you know, we, we can't be content with, with prayerless praying. You know, we, we're just saying our prayers or, you know, laying those things out. You know, we, we need, and there's a lovely picture, we should set the sail and we should long for the precious wind of the Holy Spirit to come. You know, we, we must set sail. We must set the sail. We have to use the means. We have to, to plead the promises. We have to cry out to the Lord. But remember... Only the Holy Spirit can empower prayer to move the soul. And so without the Spirit's movement, the sails of prayer hang limp. But we seek grace to maintain that priority and we seek the Lord and we long for him to come in that way and to give us the help that we so desperately need. We're turning to so many other things, but we need that precious work of the Holy Spirit. We need his help. And so we see that, the spirit of grace, the spirit of supplication. And then also we see the spirit saving work. One of the, the vital works of the Holy Spirit 
is to produce true repentance. Now, friends, I hope you know it by now, but the great end in view of all of the work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Lord Jesus. Jesus said in John 16, he will glorify me. That's the test, by the way. When you look around and, you know, many things are claimed to be done in the name of the Holy Spirit, the test is, is Jesus glorified? Is Jesus exalted? Is Jesus central? That's the thing. And so we see that principle in our text. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in this amazing way. What will happen? Christ will be glorified. He will teach sinners to look upon Christ, the Christ who was pierced upon the cross. And the Holy Spirit convicts concerning our rejection of the Lord Jesus before then giving us what we need to trust him and to believe in him as our Redeemer and Savior. Again, just think of Pentecost for a moment. You know, Peter preaches in the power of the Holy Spirit and he, he proves from the prophets that Jesus is who he says he is. And their amazement as they, as they listen gives way to to sort of perplexity about it all. And then they're convicted. And then the sorrow over sin. Acts 2.23, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And so they hear this and the Holy Spirit is at work and they stand convicted. Convicted before God and in their own conscience. And they're given to see Christ in a way that they'd never seen him before, and their heart is, is convicted, they see the one whom they had pierced. And they cry out, what must we do? They'd looked on Christ, they despised him and rejected him, they didn't think him worthy, they didn't want to look upon him when he was with them. But now they are convicted and they are aware of their sin and they are persuaded that the one whom they had cr cried crucified was in fact the Messiah. Their hearts are wounded and broken with sorrow and shame and crushed with the reality of what had happened. The Spirit of God at work. And you know, this prophecy, it applies beyond the Jews of that day. You know, we are all guilty of the same crime. We reject Christ and have rejected Christ. And you know, if, if we're believers by the grace of God, we can remember that time when we were against the gospel, when we didn't want him. And you know, we, we reject Christ every time we hear the gospel and do not repent and believe in the Son of God. We crucify the Savior with our unbelief. And you say, well, what is unbelief? Well, it's enmity against God. It is refusing to believe the record that God has given of his own Son. Unbelief is disobedience to the Word of God. We reject and crucify Christ when we, we love our sin and our idols. We crucify Christ by cleaving to our self-righteousness and refusing to bow the knee. You know, remember when the Lord Jesus conducted his earthly ministry and he proclaimed the great truths of the gospel, how they hated him. His message condemned them. It condemned their worldliness and their self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. And when he said, you know, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the, the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way which leads to life. Few who find it. They hated him. And especially the, the religious leaders, they, they wanted rid of him. We do the same by nature. And yet people are blind. They are not aware of the great tragedy of belief. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you just don't realize the seriousness of being unconverted. You don't realize the the damning nature of your unbelief, the, the condemnation that you are facing. And you're never moved, you're never grieved by your unbelief. And, you know, there are times when we, you know, those of us who know the Lord, we, we stand back and it's, it's frightening to see the hardness of people's hearts. You know, many unconverted people, they think that they are, you know, victims to be pitied. Maybe you think that. Well, it's not my fault that I don't believe. You know, what, what can I do about it? Few see the awfulness of remaining in, in rebellion against God and how rejecting the Savior is such a terrible crime. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you think, well, I'm not too bad. You know, I've, I've lived a, a decent life and, you know, I, I even come to church from time to time. You know, I maybe pick up a Bible from time to time. It's not enough. And while you remain far from God in unbelief, you remain adamant in your unwillingness to believe the testimony of God concerning himself and you. An unbeliever is an enemy of God and Christ. And God has so wonderfully provided the only remedy to your sinful condition, and that is the shed blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And yet, there are still those, even here, who refuse it. And if you're honest, you don't want Christ. You don't want him to be king over you. You don't desire him. You know, you're not looking to him. You're not willing to turn from your sin and give up your idols for him. You're not willing to be saved as a a poor sinner trusting in the blood of Jesus and his righteousness. You don't want those things. You're like the Pharisees who heard his teaching that, you know, they needed to be delivered by him. And what did they do? They took up stones to kill him. The Lord Jesus says, do you want to stone me because I've told you the truth? He told them the truth about themselves and they hated him. It's no different today. People don't want the truth. By nature, they still cry, away with Christ. You know, at Pentecost, these pious Jews, they come to Jerusalem for Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles. They thought that they were right before Jehovah, keepers of the law. They thought everything was in place. They're on their way to paradise, but they were lost. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out. The Holy Spirit comes and they're given to look to Christ. They're they're given to understand the true state of their hearts. They're convicted of their sin and their rejection of Jesus. The only remedy for their soul. You know, and it's true that when the Holy Spirit teaches us the truth about ourselves, our rejection of Jesus, we see the sinfulness of sin. And we see that we've sinned against a holy God but also we see a glorious God who sent his own son to save us and to bear our sin away. And when the Holy Spirit deals with us and is poured out upon us, we we confess, how could I sin against such a God? How could I have continued to reject such a wonderful Savior? How foolish I have been to turn away from such an amazing gospel. You know, we see that he endured the horror of Calvary for us. And we mourn over our sin, the dreadful cost of our salvation, but we cast ourselves upon him. You know, the mourning of true repentance is compared in this text to two things. Look at verse 10. The grief a parent feels at the loss of an only son. You know, who can imagine? You know, according to Jewish custom, this grief would be the greatest sorrow God could lay upon a family. 
Jeremiah speaks of this morning as a most bitter lamentation. And his conviction of sin is like that. The grief the Israelites felt also, verse 11, when the God-fearing King Josiah was slain in battle by the Egyptians. When he was slain at Hadad Rimon, a town in the valley of Megiddo, and there was a profound lamentation, mourning the loss of the king. It's like that. And Zechariah says that a, a sinner who sees that he has pierced Christ with his sin may be compared to these occasions of grief, the bitterness of the sorrow, the sincerity of the, the conviction of sin, not because of our, our own state alone, but because of the dishonor and the wrong that we have wrought against our holy and merciful God. And sin is seen for what it is when it is seen in the light of Calvary. The sufferings of the Lord Jesus have been called God's commentary on sin. There is nothing so humbling as when we are brought to Calvary and we are shown that it is our sin that nailed Jesus to that tree. That my sin pierced the merciful Savior. Brokenness of heart. The godly sorrow which works true repentance. That's the result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then you have, as we draw these things together, the glorious promise in Zechariah 13.1. You know, from that conviction, from that, that deep despair over sin, there is this great hope. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. A fountain open. You know, plentiful cleansing, more than we could ever need Martin Luther said, enough for a thousand worlds. This fountain, a tremendous illustration of God's stunning willingness to save sinners through his son, the Lord Jesus. You know, it's very interesting. The term sin and uncleanness, when it is used together in the Hebrew, it describes the, the most difficult, the most awful state of defilement. And Zechariah is saying that even that depth of sin and uncleanness can be washed not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the blood of the Savior. And in an everlasting, ever-present, ever-flowing fountain that is able to cleanse the chief sinner, this fountain is a fountain of great grace. And sinners who have pierced Christ, who are given to look upon Jesus crucified for their sins, they see with the, the, the horror of their sin, but now they look upon the one whom they rejected, but who did not reject them and who died in their place. And they see that his sufferings are the cause of their deliverance, and they embrace with reality. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. What a wonder his grace is, that God turns our sorrow into joy when we see by faith that this fountain is open for us, the fountain of Jesus' blood when we embrace him as our substitute and know unspeakable joy and all by the precious work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, my friends, I pray that you would know this. You know you have your reasons. Maybe this morning you've come and maybe you've got your reasons all lined up why you're not converted. And maybe you've heard many gospel messages and you've got your excuses ready and you say, oh, well, I can't believe and I, I won't believe and I'm against the Lord. But would you not consider the seriousness of your position without Christ? And all those excuses which you have got lined up will be exposed in the judgment day. 
Friend, have you ever looked upon Christ as the one pierced by your sin because such a sight kills all our self-righteousness? It destroys all our so-called goodness and pride and it brings us broken to the foot of the cross. And this true repentance is altered by the spirit of grace and supplication and as Joseph Hart wrote, true religion is more than notion. Something must be known and felt. And we feel the pang of conviction. And know this, if you don't look upon Christ now whom you have pierced, the day is coming when, as Revelation 1 says, every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And one day you will be compelled to look on Jesus Christ. But on that day there will be no longer any time for mourning. God's fountain will be shut. We're going to look at that tonight. Our hearts must be broken now for genuine repentance. And if it is not, be assured that our heart will be broken by eternal judgment hereafter. But what of you, believer, as we finish? You know, you've been made one who looks to Christ here. Christ, our hope in life and in death. Well, let me give you an example of what it means. William Cooper, he knew this great truth. You know, he was possessed a, a very sensitive, fragile disposition and when his mother died he was only six years old and it it totally changed his situation mentally unstable and frequently he would battle deep deep times of depression and he tried to protect himself by keeping busy and trying to keep his mind occupied but a, a crisis came when both his father and his stepmother died and then not long after that his closest friend drowned and so the result was a, a mental and emotional collapse so that Cooper was admitted to an asylum for the insane in those days. And at length, in that situation, by God's grace and providence, he was entrusted to the care of a Christian man. And it was during that time that Cooper came to grasp the meaning of the gospel and the knowledge that Jesus loved him, died for him, and dealt with his sin. And this is what he wrote, immediately... I received strength to believe it and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement that Christ had made. My pardon was sealed in his blood. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. Before long, Cooper was able to leave the asylum, his heart cleansed by the fountain of the blood of Christ. And it was then that he penned that following testimony this wonderful hymn there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains as since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die do you know in his life his struggles continue his mental struggles, and there were times when he knew the very darkest, darkest valleys, and yet he was ever brought back to this. He loved me and gave himself for me, and he won't let me go. And ask God, my friend, for grace to encamp your soul at Calvary every day. Bring your sorrow for sin to him. Cling to that open fountain of blood and salvation. And like Cooper, no doubt there are times, you know, when we're going to struggle, but we know the day is coming when we will behold the Lord Jesus in glory. 
And one day you will gaze on him forever without any more mourning, any more sorrow, any more tears, any more sighing. It will be gone. And you'll be comforted with the oil of gladness. As it says in Revelation, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Forever you shall praise Christ as you gaze upon the Lamb who sits in the midst of the throne. And how have you been brought to that point? It's all of his grace. And the precious work of the spirit of grace and supplication. Without him, we would not know these things. We would not have this certain hope. And so we should be so thankful that God in his purposes sent his son and his son did all that was necessary to save us. And we should be so thankful for the precious work of the Holy Spirit who makes those things real to us and gives us life and life forever. Amen.